Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Life coaches love to talk about having confidence in their clients and the importance of building self-worth and self-esteem. Fortunately for the church in Roman Corinth, Paul does not view his followers as customers and he definitely does not have confidence in them. On the contrary, Paul's boldness is in God's teaching at work in his children. St. Paul's hope is not in the ability of his disciples, but in the power of the teaching to manifest its fruit on its own terms. Richard and I discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 132 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are pivoting on verse 8 in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We ended with verse 8 last week. It seems the whole section is hinging on this question of suffering and Paul rejoicing in suffering, but not a fleshly suffering, which is what the church in Jerusalem advocates, worldly ascesis. He is interested in the suffering that is produced when you obey the teaching. You know, when my kids are struggling with a subject in school, that's when I know they're learning something. If they're skating through, they're not learning anything. If your struggle as a student is to get a good grade, it's unto death. If your struggle as a student is to learn and to renew your mind by conforming it to knowledge, that struggle is unto life. The one struggle is self-righteous and self-gratifying. Look how smart I am, look what I achieved. The other struggle submits to something outside of you that is greater than you for a greater cause, which is the common good. And Paul is saying, do you want to struggle and suffer for yourself to get the grade for your bloody resume? which is what the works of the flesh are. Same activity, which is the funny thing, but you're doing it for the wrong purpose, and so therefore you're going in the wrong direction. Or do you want to cleave to what I'm saying? For its sake unto life. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. So you started to suffer correctly, But then you went off the rails again, so I should have been harder on you. When you were sorry, when you felt bad, I was not sad about that. The only time I did feel sad is when you stopped feeling sad. (laughs) Right. This technically would get you fired. Can you imagine if someone in the school system talked this way as a teacher? Or if a college professor spoke this way? The boards of directors around the country would have a nervous breakdown. The only time I felt bad about my students is when they stopped feeling bad about how little they knew. 
What are you going to do when you have to get feedback at the end of the semester so that you can raise tuition and convince rich people this is where they should send their kids? I now rejoice! Not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. That's the key. That's what's unto life. If you're just sorrowful because you're a perfectionist and you're mad at yourself because you didn't attain the grade, it's useless. But if you're sorrowful because you are rebelling against God and you see it as an opportunity for repentance, then there's hope. So the sorrow for Paul is not the end. The sorrow for those who strive according to the flesh is the end. They boast about how much they've suffered. Listen to how people talk when they were on credibility. They sound like Paul, but they're not saying the same thing. They talk about how they've suffered and how their parents are immigrants and they didn't have money and they ate dirt on the weekends, blah, blah, blah. Typical American narrative. So that I could have a great job and a wonderful house and this beautiful life. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, I suffered so that you would suffer so that we could share everything with everyone, not so that I could have a better life. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. That Paul is trying to teach them. Any lesson that they do badly on, they need to know they did badly on it so that they can take whatever remediation they need in order to learn that lesson. And so they felt sad because they weren't living up to the teaching of God, this is the sorrow that leads to repentance. And repentance means that you go on the correct path. In the Old Testament, the metaphor of walking is used for obedience. And when you walk, you can walk on the path towards your goal, or you can go off the path, go on to a different path, turn around and go the wrong direction on the path. Everyone requires turning. So, apostasy and repentance in Hebrew are both the same word. Shuv, turning. Because you can turn away from God, but then you can turn back to God. The sorrow that you feel is like, oh no, I've made all this progress on the wrong path. I've been walking all this time and not getting where I thought I was supposed to go. Then you feel bad. But at least that makes you feel like, okay, now it's time to get back on that path. Okay, fine, you weren't on the correct path. But you know what? If you're heading towards God's will, you're on the correct path. So let's just get back there. And if you feel sad as you walk farther and farther away from God, there's no point to it. If you're sorrowful at the end of the harvest in Mark, it's too late. If you are sorrowful in Matthew after the bridegroom comes, it's too late. That is a sorrow that is unto death. That is the sorrow, as Bethany pointed out in her reading of Proverbs, of wisdom that is worthy of mockery and laughter because you're a fool. God's going to laugh at you. Your sorrow is laughable because you're not serious. That's why it's unto death. If you're trying to get the A, you're not serious. Because why do you want the A grade? Why do you want to brag about how well you did in school? So that you can be appreciated in worldly terms. Paul's interested in the person who is shunned by everyone, does not have the respect of their colleagues or their teachers or anyone, but actually delivers on the content of the gospel. It's like, it's like my seventh grade math teacher said, patience is for the birds. When she makes her students feel bad, they learn faster. So she stopped being patient with them. For behold, 
what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. When they show that they feel bad for not doing the right thing, it shows that they have some modicum of virtue left. So the earnestness that they have is their godly sorrow. When you feel bad for not doing God's will, it shows your earnestness to want to do the right thing. So the fear that you're not doing the right thing, the longing to do the right thing, the zeal to do the right thing, the avenging of the wrong that you did. So when it says that you're innocent, agnos, which interestingly here relates to ceremonial defilement. You're free from ceremonial defilement. So the fact that you feel bad about your sin shows that you're innocent. And innocent means chaste. It means pure. The fact that you feel sad is what shows that you have virtue. This is why we hear talk about cleansing tears. When you feel bad about your sin, and not feel bad about your sin like, oh, I wasn't a nice enough person. Oh, I should be a nicer person. Not this kind of thing. But really understanding that you do not submit to your neighbor in love. Understanding that you judge your teachers. Understand that you judge the gospel. That you do not put your trust in God. Once you understand this, the sorrow you feel is correct. There's a behavior in the organization. An employee does something or is engaged in a behavior. You bring them into your office to have a conversation. First, you check to see if your assessment is correct by asking a few questions because you don't want to rush to judgment. People always rush to judgment in their heads. But once the person out of their own mouth confirms the behavior, then you have to say to that person, this is incorrect behavior. You need to address this behavior. If the person pushes back on you, then you have to find a way to restate the criticism. And then if the person continues to push back, the criticism gets louder and louder and the reactions get harsher. And it's this echo chamber that amplifies this tension over the incorrect behavior. Conversely, when someone hears the feedback and is open to feedback, which is a sign of maturity, the whole situation gets diffused quickly because the employee says, I didn't realize I was doing that, or I see what you're saying, or I don't fully agree with you, but I'm willing to try to understand. That is what Paul is rejoicing at here, that willingness, despite yourself, to at least be open to the critical feedback. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Meaning, I saw something of value, I saw that it was worth my time because you were willing to at least be open to repentance. There was a modicum of sincerity in your reaction to the teaching, like a little ember that if you blow on it, you could turn into a flame. And so for that reason, I wrote to you. He didn't just write to adjudicate the matter. Okay, person A was right and person B was wrong, or person A was wrong and person B was right. It's not for the offender or the offended that I wrote. I wrote to you so you understood the imperative of following God's law in everything. In the sight of God, because the easy thing for the teacher to do in the situation is to wash his hands of the disciples because they're not worth his time. But if they show even a modicum of sincerity, a modicum of earnestness, Paul has to respond. He's a slave. He has no right to dump the student. 
That's why the priest has to come back every Sunday, no matter how the parishioners treat him. He cannot play the victim. It doesn't matter if no one listens to the sermon. It doesn't matter if everybody bucks him. If there's even the smallest, faintest hope of the potential of one of the lost sheep hearing the message, the shepherd has to keep preaching. The fact that they keep coming back and hearing it has to tell the preacher, okay, something there wants to hear this. Maybe it's smothered by a bunch of other things, but there is still that ember. I have to keep preaching. Just because they're inconsistent with their desire to listen doesn't mean I can be inconsistent with my desire to teach. For this reason, we, the apostolic we, have been comforted. You should be comforted because your work is not in vain. There is hope in the sight of God. They show earnestness. They might even not know they have earnestness. Paul's trying to show them that despite the fact that you are this bad, there's still a remnant in Jerusalem. God is not going to completely wipe out the city. There'll be one or two left and we can start over. You need the teacher to say, I know you feel sad. But for me, the fact that you feel sad is good news. So I'm telling you, it's good news. It doesn't feel like good news, but it is good news. The fact that you feel sad. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, our lieutenant, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. He was the one who realized that there is some hope left. Paul may have cut you off because there was nothing left. But Titus came in and realized there is some godly sorrow among you, and so Paul can be refreshed thanks to Titus's encouragement. This is a classic management paradigm. Titus, I've got a team in Corinth, and there's some poison there, and they passed a petition around, and they decided they disagreed with me, and they're going to go to HR. It's a big mess. I need to send you in there because I've got to deal with the Romans. Would you find out what the heck is going on and just get back to me? And let me know who's got my back in Corinth and who's trying to throw me under the bus. So Titus went in, did a little search and reconnaissance, and came back and said, Look, they're a little bit thick upstairs, but I still think they might listen to you. They're still grumbling about the email you sent saying that they're causing a lot of problems for you. The fact that they're still grumbling about it makes me think they still actually want to keep working here. So Titus went in and decided, I don't need to fire anybody, Paul. These employees are salvageable. That's what he's saying. It's beautiful. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. Guess what? We don't have to fire them all. And Paul says, that's a relief. I feel refreshed. And Titus says, I feel refreshed too. And guess what? They all feel really sad in Corinth still. Okay, as long as they keep feeling sad about what they did, I'm not going to have to worry about that insubordination again. The funny thing is, is this is exactly how it works in life. Because when you discover you don't have to terminate someone's employment, when you discover that it's not as bad as you thought and they're willing to work with you, that usually is the beginning of a real blossoming. Because that's how trust is built. That's how teams are formed. You have to be put through the test. And, and that's what Paul is doing. He's putting this church through the test. And the test that he puts them through is by putting the pressure on them because of what the Romans are doing to him. You know, this is the classic test. Everyone is against me. I am your leader. I am the weakest. I am the lowliest, the most humble leader around. At one point, you confessed 
your desire to stay with me through thick and thin. Well, guess what? It's thick. Are you going to stick with me? From what I'm hearing, it does not look good. But I'm going to send Titus because there might be something. There might be some shred of loyalty left. Titus is going to give me the last word. His affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. So here, Paul is also preparing for the future because he wants them to respect Titus. Titus is his proxy. The way they treat Titus is the way they treat Paul. And one day there'll be no Paul. You'll be stuck with Titus. So he needs to make sure that Titus in his place can command the appropriate respect to continue the work of this epistle. And it also is good news because it means they know that Titus's word is going to get back to Paul whatever happens. When they treat Titus correctly, it means that they have the ability to treat Paul correctly. And if they have this ability, then there's something they're worth saving. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you and here Again, I wouldn't say confidence here. I would say I feel encouraged in you. Because he's being encouraged by the teaching, by the will of God at work in them. In all things, I am encouraged in you. Can he trust that the teaching is going to continue? He can trust that the teaching is going to continue if he has a community that is feeling sad about how they're drifting away from the teaching. Because if they feel sad about drifting away from the teaching, it means in their head, the teaching has lodged. Tharo and Imin. The key here, and this is where I want to end, we have to train our minds. Paul does not have confidence in the church. It's a really, really corrupt translation. If Paul has confidence in the church, then the cross was in vain. Paul is saying over and over again, his confidence is in the teaching. Confidence implies that you look at someone who's striving and you think their striving will go somewhere. It's not what he's saying here. I really want to end strong on that point, Richard, that this is the story, as we said a few episodes back, not of the church, not of Israel. It's the story of God's will. And that is where the boasting and the boldness and the encouragement and the confidence lies. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.